and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 3, verse 13. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 13. Last time we saw God use Peter and John to heal a lame man. Because of the very public miracle, a great deal of attention was focused on the men. Instead of using the opportunity to glorify himself, Peter took the opportunity to speak of Jesus and glorify him. Let's see what Peter says as we resume our study in Acts chapter 3, verse 13. If you want to be a person that God can use, you're going to have to learn that God prefers to use humble people. Also, if you want God to use you, don't be surprised if from time to time something humiliating happens in your life. You see, there's a reason for that. Maybe the humiliation isn't so bad after all if it makes us a little bit more usable and being able to be used by God and useful to God. You see, you can choose to be humble or you can let God humble you. The choice is yours. But if you're a humble person, then it's impossible to be humiliated. Peter knows that the great power that has been displayed has been displayed by Jesus. And so he's not going to take any of the glory here, but he's going to use it as an opportunity to share about Jesus, to put the spotlight on Jesus. Peter used what has happened to preach the gospel. He didn't say, now this is important to understand because of what we see so much on television today. He didn't say, wasn't this a wonderful healing service? Now let's go home. We've seen it all. God has shown up. God has visited us. Now we can go home. No, he uses that then to teach the word and to share the gospel. And this is a pattern, by the way, through the book of Acts. Miracles draw the attention so that the gospel can be shared and preached and the word can be taught. So when a miracle happened, a message in the book of Acts follows. You'll see that happen as we continue to go. Twice now, God has done things to get the people's attention. And Peter has used those opportunities to teach the word and to tell them about Jesus. A few days earlier, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples during Pentecost, Peter used that opportunity to preach Christ and 3,000 people got saved. And you know, you're going to have opportunities yourself. You'll have opportunities at home or at work or at school where people are going to be amazed about certain things. Perhaps God saves someone's life or saves someone's job. Or maybe it's just the way you handle things. Or maybe it's just because you have a smile on your face all of the time. Use those opportunities to share Jesus with others. When the Holy Spirit first came upon the disciples at Pentecost, Peter used that opportunity to preach Christ, and now he's going to do the same thing. But now he does it differently. This time he begins with a series of facts which could do nothing but arouse the guilt of these Jewish people. And psychologists today tell us that that's the worst thing that you can do in trying to help someone to arouse a sense of guilt within them. That if you make them feel guilty, then you shut the door to any real help to them. But that is not the case, as we will see. Peter does that. He lays a guilt trip on them. Without hesitation, he moves to a recital of facts which arouse the guilt of these Jewish people. Verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus. So Peter wisely now immediately took the spotlight off of himself and pointed it at Jesus. For it is at his name that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up. Now notice the contrast that he draws between the acts of God and the acts of men. He says, God, the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God whom you have worshipped, God glorified his servant Jesus, but you delivered him up. See, God glorified him, you delivered him up to be crucified. Then he says at the end of verse 13, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Now, Pilate tried several times to have Jesus released, but the Jews kept pressing to have Jesus crucified. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, the Jews denied that he was their king. John 19:15. listen. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So in essence, Peter says, the man to whom you delivered him, Pilate, who was a pagan, a Gentile ruler, and who did not have the background of the theology or understanding of God's activity that you have, was convinced of his innocence and tried to release him. But you, he says, you denied him. You people ought to have recognized him as the one sent from God. You denied him, but Pilate tried to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just. Now here Peter is using terms that these Hebrews would have understood because they come from the Old Testament. These are names that are applied to the Messiah and they recognize his deity, his divine nature, the fact that the one who was coming would be God himself. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So Peter says you denied the holy and the righteous one when he came. Instead, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. In his place, you demanded that Barabbas be delivered up to you, and he was a murderer. In other words, you denied the giver of life and asked that a taker of life be delivered up to you. Verse 15, and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Peter says you killed the author of life. But God answered you by raising him from the dead. And so you can see that Peter boldly lays the guilt of Jesus' death squarely where it belongs. But you know, we are just as guilty of his death as any of Peter's first listeners. We too fall into this category as those who killed the author of life. It is our sins that separated us from God. And God decided to fix that problem by allowing Jesus to pay for our sins, dying in our place. Jesus went to the cross because of man's sin, every man's sin. You see, no man is exempt from God's love. Isn't that wonderful? It was for every man that Jesus died. And so every man in all the arrogance and the rebellion and denial of his sins delivered Jesus up to the cross and killed him. It is our sins that drove him to the cross. But it was his love that kept him on the cross. Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. 
the power of the name of Jesus is really something. Jesus said, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 14. There is tremendous power in the name of Jesus, even when it falls from the lips of the quote-unquote weakest saint. Some people say, well, yes, you know, the name of Jesus, I understand that, but, but you know, I don't have enough holiness and I don't have enough righteousness to use his name. Listen, it doesn't matter how weak you are. The power isn't in you. It's in the name of Jesus. You can be weak. That doesn't matter. The power isn't in you. It's in the name. And he goes on, verse 16, Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You see, even the faith that Peter had, that he used, is, quote-unquote, through him. The ability to trust God for this miracle came from Jesus himself. Not only did the healing itself come from God, but even the faith to believe came from God, which is why we thoroughly reject the false teaching that people are sick because they don't have enough faith to be made well. And to the preachers and to the faith healers who propound such an idea, the question is to them, what about your faith? Why isn't your faith kicking in? Because in this example, it isn't the lame man's faith that figured into the equation at all. He was just begging for bucks. The only faith he had is, is that he might get a handout. It was the faith given by God to Peter and John that healed the lame man. Verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Peter recognized that they called for the execution of Jesus in ignorance, albeit a willful ignorance. They were in ignorance of God's eternal plan. But notice Peter's tact here. You see, he's leaving the door open for these people to repent. Sometimes I think we press the point so hard that we win the argument, but we lose the soul. And I wonder if in these words we do not have an echo of Peter's memory of those words that he heard from Jesus on the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So on the one hand, the people were guilty of putting Jesus to death. On the other hand, he had to die to fulfill those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets. You say, where is that? Well, Isaiah 53, Genesis 22, Psalm 22, beautiful foreshadowings of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ written thousands of years in advance. So even though Peter allowed that they acted ignorantly, he also insisted that Christ's death was not accidental. It wasn't a mistake, but part of the prophetic plan. Now, after laying the guilt trip on them, Peter now moves to God's answer to guilt, and the only answer that there is to guilt in the human race. Verse 19, he says, repent. Repent means to turn. It means to change one's mind. Repent, therefore, and be converted. And the word converted means to turn back, to turn away from sin and turn toward God. Now, maybe you've been struggling 
this morning as I've been talking about these people denying Jesus Christ. Listen, Peter doesn't leave the people in this condition of guilt. He shows them the way out. And you too can turn toward God no matter how many times you've turned away from him. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out has the idea of wiping ink off of a document. Ink in the ancient world had no acid content, so it wouldn't bite the paper. And, and it could almost always be wiped off with a damp cloth. Peter is saying that God will wipe away our record of sin just like that. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now that is what it's like to have your sins forgiven and blotted out. It's refreshing. It is refreshing. Listen to King David. He talks about the joy of forgiveness. This is Psalm 32. Listen to what he says. He says, Oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable, and I groaned all the day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. To have your sins forgiven to have all of your guilt taken away is refreshing. So Peter says, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now it is refreshing to have your sins blotted out, but that really isn't what Peter's referring to here. He's talking about the time when Jesus returns and rules the earth in righteousness. He goes on in verse 20 by saying, And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Now, on this one scripture in verse 21, a whole doctrine has been developed of the final restoration of all things. It's that the final restoration of all things will take place when Satan finally kneels down and confesses his guilt and is brought in again as a child of God, and God has finally restored everybody and everything, all sinners, everybody will be saved. This particular heresy is based upon that one verse. You see, this is not referring to the restoration of the wicked at some future date, and it's obvious by the fact that he says, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. That has never been prophesied, that Satan would bow down and that there would be a restoration of the wicked. The restoration of all things is simply another term for the future reign of Jesus Christ. It is the millennial kingdom. Jesus came... Jesus left, and Jesus is coming again. And when he does, it will be vastly different. He's not going to come to die for people's sins. He's going to come to judge sin and to restore all things. Verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Peter uses scripture here in preaching, Deuteronomy 18.15, to mention the great prophet that Moses predicted would come. Now the Jews of Peter's day were aware of the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, but some thought that the prophet would be someone different than the Messiah. Peter makes it clear that they are one and the same. Verse 23, And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Again, quoting Deuteronomy 18. You see, there is hope for those who turn to Jesus. There is no hope for those who reject Jesus. Yes, verse 24, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Once again, Peter quotes scripture, Genesis 22:18. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Jesus was sent first to the Jews. They had the privilege of the Messiah coming from them and being sent to them. Later, the gospel would spread out to the Gentiles of the world. Now, we need to realize that at this point, Peter is just a street preacher, isn't he? I mean, that's all he's done so far. He's just preaching on the street corner. But what an incredible handle he has on the Word of God. Peter quotes here from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, to those who had gathered on Solomon's porch. And if you want to be used by the Lord, learn the Word. Study the Word. The study of Scripture is a lifelong discipline and an eternal delight. It's pleasurable. It's fascinating. It's stimulating. So take notes, write in the margins of your Bible. Do whatever it takes to help you remember to become thoroughly familiar with the scriptures. If you do, your heart will be filled and your mind stimulated and enlightened, but like Peter, you will be used by the Lord time after time. Now what is Peter saying here? He's saying to these Jewish people, he's saying your Bible, Jewish nation, your Old Testament is chock full of prophecies and predictions of what this person would be like, who he would be, so you could identify him. So you have absolutely no excuse. Remember, Jesus said at one point to them in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you might have life. Here they were with their scrolls. They actually bowed down to their scrolls. They were kissing them in the synagogue services. They were unrolling them and reading from them with their hands uplifted. They loved the word, but they neglected the word of God in Christ. The very one that the Bible spoke about, they rejected and neglected, and there was no excuse. You see, theirs wasn't an intellectual problem. Theirs wasn't a philosophical or theological problem. It was a moral problem. He said, you need to repent. You need to turn. 
And the message is exactly the same for us today in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted. There are many people in churches every Sunday of the year who have come to church, but who have not come to Christ. They have never repented of their sins. The thinking of many people is this. I'm a good person. Good people go to church, and so I'll go to church. Well, it's only when that good person realizes I am not a good person. In my own goodness, I am nothing. I have no inherent goodness that's good enough to get me into heaven. And there's a sorrow for sin. There is a humility. That will cause that person to repent. There is nobody in heaven who has not repented. That means that you take a U-turn on the road of life. You realize, I need God. I need the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The message of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, of Joel, of Amos, of Jonah, the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus Christ, the message of Peter, the messages of Paul, all include repentance. That is the message of the Bible. If you have not repented, you will never go to heaven. You must be born again. Now, there are some things in our lives that are optional. For instance, when we go to the store to buy a shirt, then we can choose any color that we want to. It's the same thing when you go out to eat. I mean, you can choose to eat at a cafeteria or you can go to an expensive restaurant. Life is filled with a thousand daily options, but there are some choices in life that are not optional. One of them is this mandate from heaven that I repent of my sin and I ask God to save me, that I be converted. That is not optional. The history books describe the terrible flood which destroyed Galveston, Texas in 1900. What happens was this. The federal government sent a warning to Galveston saying a great storm is coming. Flee for your lives. Find a refuge in the mainland. Leave. Well, at that time, a long iron bridge connected the city from the mainland, and a very few left the city over that bridge. But the majority of the city went outdoors, and they looked up in the sky, and there wasn't a cloud to be found, and the ocean was calm and serene. The people went back to work and about their business. The federal government sent them warning from the Weather Bureau, not once or twice, but time and time again, saying there is a great storm coming, you must flee for your lives. And the people went out and they looked at the sky, which was still blue, and the ocean was calm and peaceful. Well, early one morning, a woman awakened her husband to tell him that the wind was beginning to blow and that the rain was beginning to fall. And he got up and he checked the windows. And the rain became a deluge and the wind became a hurricane and great tidal waves swept over the islands endlessly. For months, they picked up dead bodies. The entire city was destroyed. There are some things in life that are not optional. Our mandate from the Lord to repent is exactly like that. You see, a time of vast judgment is coming upon this world. Listen to what Peter said again in verses 19 through 21. 
Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. A vast judgment is coming upon this world. You see, death is not to reign in this earth forever. Sin is not always to be present in the sight of God. There will not always be age, sickness, disease, darkness, violence, terror, iniquity, transgressions, murder, and blood. There will be a time when God will purge the earth and the heavens of all that hurts and destroys and offends. God is going to create new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And Peter says, in the light of the great judgment day of Almighty God, in view of the great consummation of the age and the restoration of all things, we must repent and we must turn and we must be converted. We have no choice in that. We face death and the judgment bar of God Almighty. Now the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier this morning in our scripture reading, ends describing a man who built his house upon the sand. The rains fell, the winds hammered, the floods enveloped, and the house was destroyed. Another man built his house upon the rock. The same rains fell, the same floods rose, the same winds blew, but that house stood because it was built upon a rock. Now, why would a man build his house in the path of a flood and a storm? Because there is no other way to build our house. All of us build our houses and live our lives in the path of the storm before the judgment day of God Almighty. We live in this world that is ridden with disease and age and death, and we must prepare for death and dying. We must prepare for that great day when we stand before God. And Peter tells us that the way to do that is by repenting of our sins and being converted. That means that I have to be willing to say, I admit that I am a sinner and I am willing to turn my life away from sin and over to Jesus Christ. By faith, I will receive him as my savior and my Lord. I will take a U-turn in life's road. I do a 180. I have done that. Have you done that? Have you been born again? Are you absolutely sure? You can know for sure. But it takes an act of faith. It takes a willingness to receive Jesus Christ in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. May it be so in all of your lives. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.